we're experimenting with a new series on AI this week. AI tends to be a blend of philosophical and product and technical, so I just didn't bother and I'm just going to call it the AI series. And I will probably introduce you to a new set of podcasts that I've been checking out as well for the past uh, few months. And so the first is from Gradient Descent. This is from the Weights and Bias startup. And the guest is Peter, what's his last name? Peter Willinder, who's VP of Products at OpenAI. Is this performance kind of tangibly different than earlier versions of GPT? Like, was there something that happened in GPT-3 where OpenAI thought, okay, we can, you know, we can like use this for real world commercial applications? Was it sort of like a performance level that it, it needed to get above? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the big difference between like GPT-2 and GPT-3 was really it was trained on more data and it was a bigger model, like by two orders of magnitude. I think the original GPT-2 was about 1.5 billion parameters and GPT-3, the biggest model was 175 billion parameters. So it went up by like two orders of magnitude. And since it was a much bigger model, it also needed more data. So the, the surprising thing is that that's sort of what it took to kind of go from feeling fairly kind of dumb to interact with. Like GPT-2 was kind of cool, but it also felt kind of incredibly stupid most of the time. And I think with GPT-3, it went to being like, you know, sometimes just surprisingly good. Like, don't get me wrong, like GPT-3 does, does a lot of silly mistakes still, but it does the right thing probably like 30 to 50% of the time on some tasks and sometimes even better than that. So it's it's sort of like suddenly before you would need to kind of sample and try out tasks and like, like maybe in once every kind of 20 or something, you would see something, oh, this looks pretty good. And with GPT-3, it kind of started happening like, every third time or every half time, like second time or every fifth time. And you're like, oh my God, this is actually for, for things like summarizing text, for example, like one example we have is summarizing a piece of text in the style of a second grader. And it's just like incredible how the model is able to kind of simplify words, get the gist of a piece of text and so on. And again, it's not perfect, uh, but it, it's like, it's just really good. and. You know, obviously we have, there's a lot of academic benchmarks. You can then run these models and you can see it kind of just getting much better on all those academic benchmarks, but it, it was a whole different feel to it. When you, when you wanted to prototype something, you know, it, the difference is that now it's just easy to get something that works pretty well. Um, and that's sort of why we decided like, Hey, this, now it seems useful. GPT-2 didn't seem kind of really useful to the same extent, but GPT-3 for all these tasks, we felt like, okay, it's close enough to kind of state of the art if you have like a specialized model or whatever, uh, a clever, clever programmer should be able to apply it to, you know, whatever task they have. And, and that was what we set up to validate with the API. What are some of the use cases that you, you feel really proud of where it, where it really works? Are there any that you could point us to where we could go interact with it in a commercial setting somewhere? Yeah, sure. Um, I think some of the areas where we kind of were most kind of surprised were uh, copywriting and question and answering and generally creative writing. Um, for copywriting, what happened there was that there was a number of companies that started building on top of our platform. Some of these companies are like, I think Copysmith was one of the first ones, Copy AI. There's also Jarvis, I think, recently changed their name to uh, a different name and, and a number of other of these companies. And what they did was really clever because they realized that, as I said, like when you're using GPT-3 to kind of do some task, it's not perfect. So every now and then it would, you would get something that doesn't really make sense. But if you're doing copywriting tasks, like 
what if like you want to write say um some engaging product description based on some attributes of a product like a shoe maybe like um the type of sole the color uh, some other attributes of the shoe and you want to kind of write something really engaging about that then um the problem that you as a human face is that you get into some kind of writer's block like where do i even start and what they what these companies started doing is they they took gpt3 and they used it to kind of generate a few kind of starting points or a few uh, variations of how you could write product descriptions and then what what you find is like more often than not um if you generate like five of those those examples like one of them would look really good and you can kind of use that as your starting point you maybe you just take it as it is or you make some small tweaks to it um it's a way to really almost like aid in human creativity you know and i think that's just so cool it, it was at like uh, writers who would tell us like hey i've been trying to write this book for like half a year now i i, I just keep on getting stuck in writer's block and then i started using your playground for gpt3 and now it took me two weeks to turn out the whole book it's it's sort of when you get stuck, it can kind of create an interesting storyline. When you start as, an, as a creative writer, you start exploring that. Like, oh, that's, that's okay. I, I wouldn't have thought of this character going down in that direction, but uh, let's explore that. And, and then it becomes a much more fun, engaging process. So it's almost like as a human, now you have like a brainstorming partner that you can apply to all these different tasks. And I think what I found was really cool is to kind of see a number of companies kind of really leveraging that and 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 creating kind of new new experience that just you couldn't you couldn't do before so i think that one is really uh exciting i think question answering is also really cool but this one was like quite unexpected um we, we i don't think we would have predicted that one being such a big use case it seems like one of the advantages of gpt3 is that it it works right out of the box but i could also imagine for some teams there might be a concern about what do you do if if something goes wrong I guess I'm curious, do you typically work with ML teams inside of companies or is it more like engineers that view the benefit here is that they don't have to figure out how machine learning works to kind of get the benefit of, of natural language processing? Or do you tend to like integrate this with ML teams into like a kind of bigger ML workflow? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a bit of a mix, I would say. We've had multiple machine learning teams who kind of you know, already had their own models that, you know, they they would have downloaded the models online and so on, and they would have like uh, kind of adapted them for their tasks. And then, you know, they, they find our API and start doing the same thing using our API. And it just turns out that you can get much better performance from our models, like just because there doesn't exist, there isn't like an open source version of the biggest models that we have, the best models. And, and so for a lot of tasks, that's kind of what works the best. Um, but I think probably the majority of our customers are more in the, the, the other camp of just really smart developers. And, you know, when I say developers, it's kind of, it's a pretty broad group. Like we, we see everything from like programmers, engineers to like designers, PMs, the number of people like, you know, have told us that the OpenAI API was sort of what got them into programming because they, they got really good results from just in our playground where you can interact with our models and they kind of got ideas and they started to learn how to code and they start connected with no code tools like Bubble.io and stuff like that. Um, it's kind of really lowered that barrier. Like you don't have to learn, become a, a machine learning expert to get really good results out of these models. You just kind of have to be kind of good at iterating and figuring out how to kind of write the instructions to the model. It's a little bit like, 
you know, sort of everybody becomes a manager. You know, you have to give really good instruction to your employee if you want them to get a, do do the task as you want it to be done. And it's very similar with these models. Like if you underspecify your tasks, you're going to get very high variance in the outputs. But if you get really good at specifying and providing a few examples, then you get really good results. And and that's not a machine learning skill. That's like almost more of a kind of task specification, like management skill. And so like, I feel like a lot of people can kind of pick that up really, really quickly. Um, I think that, that I, I've been really excited about that, just seeing so many people get access to these models that just seem like you had to have a PhD in machine learning to, to, to work with before. I feel like I've heard of people talk about a new role called prompt engineer that might be related to this of so figuring out how to prompt GPT-3 yeah. to get it to do what you want it to do. So, so, so this one is interesting because like, so we, um, early on when we had the first version of the API, we had a really smart guy who, who is a like world renowned author, but also kind of a programmer, Andrew Main. Um, you know, he, he was one of the early, uh, users of the API. And he kind of got the internal name of like the, the prompt whisperer, you know, he, he or like GPT-3 whisperer. He, he kind of really knew how to craft the prompts to kind of get the best results. And um, since it's been trained on the internet, you kind of need to put your mind in like, how would the text on the internet kind of start? So if you wanted to kind of a really good recipe, you had to kind of start writing in the tone of like a recipe book or a food blog post or something like that. It's not like you could just ask the model to do what you wanted it to do. So I think initially, like there was a big piece to that. Like you really had to be good and, uh, at understanding kind of the intricacies of GPT-3 and, and design really good prompts. Over the past um, past one and a half years since we launched, we saw people struggling with this a lot. So we developed a new set of models that we called Instruct GPT, GPT uh, which actually just like last week became like the default in our API um, and. The reason they call it instruct GPT is because you just provide instructions. So like, I would say like prompt design is a little bit less of a thing now. Like you could just tell the model what you wanted to do and pro provide a few examples. There's still a, like a little thing about like the formatting might impact like how you provide your examples and so on. Not like GPT-3 is like super robust to that, but like sometimes it does matter a little bit. Some tweaking uh, matters, but I would say like it's less of a thing now than it was like a year ago. And my hope is that it becomes less and less of a thing and it becomes much more almost in, in, interactive. And you've also launched the ability to fine tune the models. What's the, the thinking there and, and where is that useful? The surprising thing with GPT-3 was that you got really good results, zero shot, where you, where you only provided like an example, uh, zero, no example, just the instructions of like, hey, translate this sentence from German to English. Uh, or you provided few shot examples where you, you know, we provide a few pairs of, of German and English. And with just a few shot examples, you could get like just surprisingly good results. But what that meant in practice is that, you know, the accuracies are very task dependent, but like for some tasks, maybe 30% of the time you got a, an output that was, was kind of acceptable to kind of put in a product. And then for other tasks that were more simple, you'll get it like maybe 70% of the time. And so when it's like not good every time, you have to be very clever in the way you kind of expose it in your product. And that's why like, for example, it worked well for a lot of those copywriting um, uh, companies, because you could just provide a few examples and you kind of knew that at least one of them would be good. And that's all the user needs. Um, 
But with fine tuning, what you can do is basically you can customize your model. So you, you can provide more examples of the inputs and outputs you want to do is if you want to do kind of translation, or if you want say you want to kind of summarize articles, you can provide like a few hundred examples of articles that have then human written summaries. And you can actually update GPT-3 to do much better at that task. Like you couldn't put all those examples in your prompt. The prompt has like limited space, but like with, with fine tuning, you, you're like working these examples into the connections of these neural network, into the weights of the neural network. And so in some way you have uh, like an infinite um, prompt, like you just, you can provide as many examples you want. Obviously, you know, the more examples, the longer it would take to, to fine tune and the, uh, the more costly it would be. But, but fine tuning is basically that, that concept of taking a bunch of input and output examples and kind of working them into the model and getting kind of a new version of the model out that's really good at that task for which you provided the examples. It turns out like with only like a few hundred examples or like around a hundred examples, you can kind of get significant boosts in accuracy. So um, we had a number of customers that have used it, like Keeper Tax, they're doing these, uh, they're like analyzing transactions to find uh, these tax write-offs and stuff like that. And so what they're doing is like they're extracting the relevant pieces of text, they're classifying and so on. And so they fine-tuned models and got much, much better results with fine-tuned models, for example. And we've seen that over and over again with, a number, uh, with our customers. They can get really good results that can often be good enough for a prototype, but then in order to get it to kind of high enough accuracy to put it in production, which is usually like more than 90% or 95 or 99% fine-tuning on, on some data sets that they have or they put together, kind of gets them all the way. So um, that's, that kind of enabled many more applications uh, than you could do before. So we, we just made it very simple to do this kind of fine tuning. I think overall, nothing too earth shattering there, but I think it um, confirms the other side of the table from, uh, from people who've been experimenting with OpenAI stuff, um, how fun it is, how much the progress has been going. And I think it's a good palette warmer for what's to come.